Okay, guys, guys, guys. All right. Before we begin, I think we should deal with any ongoing cult business. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Okay, on, sure. Whatever. It's right I don't here. Want to do that. It's right here in the cult charter. It's the rules. Oh, God. It's rules. Yeah, have right, a rules right. lawyer. Well, what have I mean, rules ever done for us? Item I mean... one. Someone left the door to the hazardous waste disposal unbolted again. And guys, I can't stress enough how bad an idea that is. Let's keep the unspeakable horrors contained, for Christ's sakes. Hey, I don't know why you're looking the, at me uh, when you say that. <laughs> isn't that where the U.S. military dumped all those drums of 245 trioxin? Worse. What could be worse than a chemical weapon that raises the dead? That's where Columbia Pictures dumped all the extra prints of Leonard Part 6. Oh my <gasps> God! Oh my sake! Someone put up a warning sign. There is a warning sign. It's in big scary letters. Yeah, then, yeah, it says beware then, of the Leonard. What kind of use is that? We shall increase the scariness. Uh, I suppose that back <sighs> Mark, but I don't think so. I mean- All right, mm. all right. And it looks like someone busted up the interocitor real good. Aww. Aww. And Brother Methuselah has gone missing. Oh, yeah. Hey. Hey. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, and uh, check it out. I found a poster from the movie Time Bandits. Look, time holes. I love that film. In fact, that's what we should do for our next conclave. Boring administerial work? Time Bandits. Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient back-wing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener, let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We Welcome, brethren and sistren, to this conclave of the Cinemania Society. Please be seated. And welcome to our listeners, to whom I will now issue this warning. We disciples of the Cinemania Society have studied the mysteries of the motion picture and meditated upon the silver screen for many years. Therefore, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize, which may contain hazards unsuitable to young and sensitive ears. As such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Guard your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of cinemania. Present at our conclave tonight are Sinquisitor Ethan, Keeper of the Lenses. I am here. Scrutinizer Zachariah, Guardian of the Door. <sighs> I am here. Profligator Daniel, Possessor of the Word. Yo. And Verifier Andy, Master Illuminator. What up? I am Professor Andrea, scholar of San Francisco. I will be serving as pontifex of presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny, Time Bandits, a film from 1981 directed by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame. 
<laughs> Verifier Andy will act as master castigator for this conclave. Verifier Andy, present the charges. <clears throat> Let's see what we've got here. <clears throat> Improper use of a toaster. Practicing medicine without a license. Thievery, bribery, consorting with the French. Transporting a minor across space-time boundaries without parental consent. Gratuitous Michael Palin in the first degree. Improper identification of what is edible. And of course, casting a Scotsman as a Cretan. Did I say that right? I was reading off. <laughs> I think he mispronounced Greek. Serious trigger warnings, though. Of violence. Yeah, that's all you got. That's yeah. my trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not that many. Uh, this might not be a subject for uh, Cinemania, perhaps. Uh, this might be Violence against the soul! Thank you, Verifier Andy. To begin our summary of this film for consideration, Profligator Daniel? Huh? Oh, wait, what? What? Uh, Profligator Daniel, could you please begin with our summary? Put <sighs> the book down. Please put the book down. What are you uh, reading? Not what we're doing right now. No, this is like thing. Not reading anything. My God, you're reading Marquis de Sade. It's <laughs> just a little light bedtime reading, man. Um, okay, okay. So, all right. So we start off with ordinary and average boy Kevin and his parents having a quiet evening at home, eating TV dinners and watching a deadly reality TV game show. Kevin would much rather read about ancient Greek warriors and the many crippling and eviscerating techniques they had for defeating foes, which is pretty standard. After bedtime, Kevin plays with his definitely not My Little Pony before sleep, when suddenly a real-life actual My Little Pony, complete with armored knight, jumps out of his wardrobe and nearly tramples him in his bed. Now, I just want to say, this is the beginning of a long sequence through uh, the first act of the movie, where you could easily just have some, like, it is far more realistic if Kevin had just died and then you just cut to the end. Like, this happens constantly. <laughs> or he gets left behind and then the end, right? <laughs> like, it's just on and on and on, like one thing after another. So anyway, so he nearly gets trampled in his bed, is not killed, so the movie continues. It was just a dream, perhaps. But then his father barges in and tells him to keep down the noise. They want to see who's next on the unnecessarily humiliating and probably dangerous game show that they are watching on the deli. And this, Speaking this of trampling, the... this is a thing that uh, apparently is a recurring issue on Terry Gilliam pictures. In the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, um, Sarah Pauly, who is the eight-year-old who is acting as the lead in that film, nearly got trampled to death in a boat by a horse, which only just barely, due to handling skill of the writer, managed to land in the water next to her. But this is where shit gets even weirder. There was a plastique charge on the bottom of the tank, which the horse dislodged floated up and it exploded next to Sarah Pauly. This is one of the reasons that she says that she continues to have PTSD from having worked on that film and, and startles every time she hears a backfire on the street. It's, it's in her memoirs that she wrote that just came out uh, this year, actually last month, called Run Toward the Danger, where she unpacks a lot of her trauma about uh, working as a lead on a Terry Gilliam picture as an eight-year-old child. Oh yeah, no, no, Terry Gilliam, Terry Gilliam is an extremely unsafe film filmmaker and also loves working with children. It's not a good combination. 
Yeah. And he, he just has the opinion that if we need to see something happen, why don't we just do that thing? Don't worry about it. You need a horse, bring a horse in. I know. He loves the practical effects. Uh, he's just not very practical about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was really funny was is that in, in the book, actually, Polly says that uh, Gilliam uh, apologized for it being an accident. and But she found out later from the effects guy who was like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to use the detonator because I can see this thing floating on the water that Gilliam sees the detonator from him and detonated anyway because he was in the scene he didn't want to call a cut but again that's all apocryphal that's all hearsay so i'm not saying gilliam actually did it but but sarah Pauli wrote that in in run toward the danger of it'll be fine just lie to one later don't worry <laughs> that's just a pony and after all friendship is magic so no, now I'm no now way. I'm super curious to if if there's a documentation anywhere about like some of the the mishaps that happened on this film because this one was done I think before Baron Munchausen. Yep. Anyway, okay. way to keep the door keeper of the door. Hey, I am not the doorman, and well, I'm late. Okay, I had some traffic between here and Altair. It's a it's a few light years. Thank you, Verifier Andre, Master Illuminator, for finally joining us today. I intended to. There you go. Could could you could you please pull in your your silver cord? It is just lying all over the floor. Somebody's gonna trip over that thing. <sighs> well, I need it. I need it. Please, I'm begging you. <laughs> God, Andre, I do not know where I am. Where am I? This is the conclave of the. Uh, Cinemania Society. Oh, the group of fools you told me about. Yeah, the, the group of really cool people I mentioned earlier. Totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, just stand in the corner over by the uh, the Star Wars uh, holiday special real quick. I will comply. Christmas Hi. will come. One day I too will be a real boy. Did you bring a super robot with you? Is that Robbie? Hey, he's better than Google. You know, we're going to discuss this at a later point. Yeah, Rob. exactly. How is he better than Google? I mean, I would say he's better than Ask Jeeves, but not Google. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't worry. I updated him with everything on the internet ever. Um, probably traumatized him in the process, but, uh, you know, hey, that's the price of knowledge. So now he can just identify a cat. That's it. <laughs> I was going to say, haven't, haven't you watched any Avengers movies? Do you want an Ultron? Because that's how you get an Ultron. Yeah, we could put down an Ultron, right, guys? Yeah. Let's just get on with it. Okay. Okay. So um, we're back to Kevin and Time Bandits. So the next okay. evening, Kevin asks to go to sleep early, which is an unusual request for a 10-year-old. But his Can mother... Confirm. <laughs> but his mother is more concerned with thinking about their state-of-the-art kitchen appliances and keeping up with the neighbors. So Kevin goes to bed, leaving his parents none the wiser about his real plans. Kevin tries to stay awake, just waiting with flashlight and camera for something to happen again, but fails. This is another place we could just be the, the end. Later on, the dresser shakes again and the time bandits fall out in a noisy heap. Uh, I'm sorry, but that was a wardrobe, not a dresser. I'm sorry, but furniture is specific. You, you, you need to learn that, that you can't just say a, a random thing is something else. It's, it's not a dresser, it's a wardrobe. Are you sure it's not more of a shiffer robe? 
A Schiffer robe, indeed. Not I a guard. Have, what about a, a guard robe? It's part of Davenport, surely. I, ha uh, I have perhaps a, it's a credenza. I have a question for for the Brits. How come you are so inert with boxes that are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside? I mean, you have Doctor Who, and you also have the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's just, you know, you open uh, something. This is, and... a, this is a vital question, and I have an answer for you here, Brother Zachariah. It's right here in this teeny tiny little box. If you look really, really closely, it's right there on the inside. It's just your middle finger. <laughs> it's bigger on the inside. <laughs> you bastard. That's the most British thing I've seen all day. Now, just for, <laughs> just for reference, uh, the Time Bandits have arrived heavily armed with guns. And when we mention the Time Bandits in future, who we are referring to is Fidget, Strutter, Og, Wally, Vermin, and Randall. The six Time Bandits were supposed to be roughly analogous to the Monty Python troupe, and each was a caricature of a different python. For example, Randall, the self-appointed leader, was patterned on John Cleese, you know, the guy who says, you know, when in response to somebody saying, but we agreed no leader, says, right, so all of you shut up and do as I tell you. Um, <laughs> Furman, the filthy garbage gobbler, was patterned on Terry Gilliam. Um, Wally, the noisy rebel, Terry Jones. Strutter, who was uh, the backbiting Judas, was supposed to be Eric Idle. Fidget, the nice one, was played by uh, R2-D2's Kenny Baker, was supposed to have been Michael Palin, whom we just talked about. And the quiet but bossy Og, uh, who is also not the brightest and uh, tends to be the, one of the more violent ones, is Graham Chapman. Oh, and so now also, what I wonder about is if they were all in on the joke or if this was actually mean satire. <laughs> the meaner it was, probably the more in on it they would have been. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. These are the guys that during a Monty Python uh, reunion after Graham Chapman died, brought, uh, brought an urn that said, this is Graham, whether it was or not, that's up for debate, and then proceeded to spill it on stage and try to like stuff it all over the place. And then someone like vacuumed him up. You know, well, I love here's a funny thing. No, I love when they fall out of the sky and Kevin goes, who are you? And they all stand up and say, we are the time bandits. I just love when they use the title. No, they, the they all stand up and start film. shooting into the air with automatic weapons, which is <laughs> awesome. But this was uh, that was Jack Purvis. That was Jack Purvis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Wally, uh, Wally, who was played by Jack Purvis, has a Sten gun, which you may recognize as being the same gun that, that, that the stormtroopers were carrying in Star Wars, but, you know, tuned up with little greeblies on the outside. But um, Jack Purvis, who is an astonishing actor, this guy is really good, everything he's in, and sadly um, was paralyzed in a car accident and died. But, like, like anything he's in, like he's in all of the Star Wars movies, you can always tell who he is, um, even when he's in, like, Jawa robes or an Ewok costume. Because he's, he's, you know, like his performance transcends the costume they put him in. Speaking of Baron Munchausen, he plays uh, Gustavus in uh, Baron Munchausen. Yes. Yeah. Gustavus. Oh, um, Kevin uses his handy flashlight to identify the intruders, and they almost shoot him in surprise. The end. Assuming that Kevin is the boss around here, the Time Bandits interrogate Kevin about the exit before realizing he's just a kid. And uh, out of nowhere, the head of the Supreme Being just the head, by the way, not creepy at all, just back from Emerald City, in fact, appears and demands they, quote, give him the map. Fortunately for them, they push against the bedroom wall and it falls back, lengthening into a hallway. 
Kevin is pushed along with them as they flee and jumps into a blackness and later swallowed up by a high-tech door in the sky. The estate agents were right all along. These suburban semi-attached houses are deceptively spacious. After landing somewhere, some when, Kevin asks if the Supreme Being is God. They don't know him that well, or they just work for him. Or at least they did. More on that later. Anyway, for now, they are desperate criminals. Wait, do you guys hear something? Could it be? It couldn't. And yet it is! Chumps! You mean cannibalistic humanoid underground music people? The same! Who left the fucking door open? Um, I might have thought that's where we kept the pickled treats and kumquat snacks. Hey, I have this shitty poster from before, and it says there's a time hole down the corridor. Wait, 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 wait. I can't leave Clark Nova behind. It has all my bug powder. Notes, notes, I mean notes. <laughs> like it. You mean, when are we? Don't you dare. That's a hackneyed cliche. I am a hackneyed cliche. Seriously, be better. I'm gonna cancel you on Twitter, I swear. Well, I believe we're in ancient Egypt. How do you know? Oh, the walls are covered in pictures of dudes with birds for a hat, squiggly lines, and people walking sideways, like this. Oh, good. Other people see it, too. Can anyone read that? Hmm, it says, crazy methods use papyrus hovel. Well, actually, I think it would be pronounced mephit. Way to mansplain hieroglyphics to our professor, Daniel. Thank you. I speculate this may be an ancient precursor to our own esteemed cult lair. Well, we should be safe here, so the conclave will have to go on. Where the hell were we? We were talking about time bandits, and this is... Off my leg, cat. Okay. Uh, so, they're someone else, and since they have agreed not to have a leader, Randall tells everyone else what to do. Realizing that they have arrived in the Napoleonic era, near the besieged city of Castiglione, so, so they decide to bravely run towards the danger. I mean, treasure. Or the danger. It's a treasure. They're not really sure. I'm not sure. No one's sure. Who's sure? The streets are a bit clogged with everyone fleeing at the moment or being dead, so they take a boat instead to sneak across the moat in a sequence that looks to belong in a far bigger budget. They run across Napoleon Bonaparte, who is enjoying a Punch and Judy show and not that interested in the fact that the mayor of Castiglione would really like to surrender to him now, please, sir. Yay, Thanks to Ian Holm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ian Holm for, for the complete win in this role. One um, of three times in total that he played Napoleon. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. <laughs> it's like, it just puts it down on, on his resume, like expert uh, Napoleon impersonator. So technically his accent is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to a bit of random crossfire, Judy becomes a casualty of the war and the stage manager is desperate to put on a show that Napoleon might appreciate when the time bandits arrive and offer their services to entertain Le Grand Fromage. 
pleased by the Time Bandit's performance, Napoleon makes them his new generals. And they all sit down to a lovely dinner among the booty. I now, love having dinner among booty. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I just feel the need to mansplain this. Um, Napoleon wasn't actually that short. Um, he was pretty average height for the time. I think it was like 5'6 or 5'7. The English loved to uh, rag on him for this. Like, it was a total smear. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. But I think what you really need to understand is it was funny. Oh. It, wasn't there an issue what the French inches were uh, shorter than the English inches? No, 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 no. It was the other way around. French inches were longer than English inches. And it's because ah. the English felt a need to have more inches when describing something. Wait, I'm confused then. Does that mean Napoleon was shorter or taller than we think he was? Taller than we think he was. Yes, he was was taller than we think he was. Napoleon was of average height, and he wants to make this completely clear to everybody who might be listening now or forever in future times, he was of average height. Average is pretty short, though. Just saying. Well, you know, this also has, it gives us a good idea as to why it's necessary to standardize and why the metric system was invented uh, a couple of decades after this. I'm sure entirely by the French for Ooh. no reason at all. Yeah, the metric system <laughs> was actually brought in by Napoleon, yes. Uh-huh. All right. After a boring dinner and speech by a piss-drunk Napoleon to his new friends about how he really isn't that short compared to all the other global conquerors, the emperor finally falls asleep and they take his hand, and I mean his whole solid gold hand that he's been hiding up his coat the entire time, along with the rest of the treasure. They escape using a well-timed about-face and sneak past terrified soldiers with ill-gotten booty wrapped up in some convenient tapestries. One of the deposed generals has the good sense to look around, and then it is back on the run to another portal. I will say that after I saw this movie as a kid for the longest time, I genuinely thought that Napoleon had one hand. Because in the paintings, he always has a hand inside the coat. You know, it's like a thing. It's like his pose, his Napoleonic pose. And I honestly thought this was historical fact. He has one hand. Like Admiral Nelson? I don't know enough about Admiral Nelson to call you wrong, and so I'm going to say yes. A fun historical fact, um, Lord Admiral Nelson was the guy who invented the multi-use eating implement. He had one tine of his fork sharpened so he could use it as a knife. So although this wasn't technically a spork, I think it may have been called a knife. (laughs) So he invented the camping spork. That's amazing. Yes, oh it's, uh, it's, it's a little rude of you there. I was literally about to say that because I know all about Admiral Nelson, but you got ahead of me, so I didn't feel the need to say it. But yes, that's probably true. Okay. okay. What's past is prologue, right? I guess we're not good. Okay. <laughs> this time, the Time Bandits fall, interrupts Sir Vincent and Miss Pansy, two nobles in a carriage discussing Sir Vincent's problem while traveling through a charming forest. Carriage destroyed. The hapless Sir Vincent and Miss Pansy flee, but run into another set of bandits. And these guys aren't charming mysteries, but actual serious ne'er-do-wells who mean business. Meanwhile, Kevin is trying to convince the time bandits that they should let him join their notorious group. Yet another point where they can just be like, no, the end. So the fun thing was is that they wanted to have the time bandits all be little people because the main character was a child and they wanted to keep everything at more or less the perspective of a child. But not because they wanted to ridicule little people or make them seem like children because here's an interesting fun fact. Terry Gilliam, when he was a teenager, worked at traveling circuses and he often worked in the freak tent. 
And he actually fought really hard to make sure that the that the little people were not ridiculed in any way. So there was supposed to have been like a, a marching song that was kind of like a re-up version of hi-ho, hi-ho. And he was like, no fucking way. And this led to a huge fight between him and Handmade Films co-founder Dennis O'Brien and George Harrison, who had written his music. And Terry's like, no, I don't want these people ridiculed at all. They're people. They're absolutely just people. And and that he fought really hard to make sure that um, like they were represented as, as people in a way that was not at all uh, a subject of ridicule. Well, that's really nice of him. Yeah. I did not yeah. know that he... Uh... He had that background. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no, he's, so. he's a raging asshole, but uh, not not in every single way. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate that he's not ragingly ableist. Yeah. He just <laughs> occasionally tries to have kids trampled and blown up. I mean, what's wrong with that? Look, it's one thing to trample a kid under the hoofbeats of your mighty war horse, but ableism is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> they let it slip that this was actually their first ever raid. As we heard previously, they worked for the Supreme Being. Being Supreme, the Supreme Being decided to subcontract the more mundane bits of creation. And this model, not even unionized, used to be in charge of making trees, shrubs, that kind of thing. They got bored of uh, the grunt work, however, just creating the same old boring foliage over and over again. Fired for creating a hilariously bad tree as a prank, they were sent to the repairs department. Again, no union representation. But then they found the map showing all of the holes in the fabric of the universe. A shoddy job, only had seven days to complete it. Since the map shows those parts of creation where cutbacks and poor manufacturing standards led to time holes, they decided to use this map for the purposes of theft, robbery, and personal enrichment, and buggered off to be bandits. Thank you, do. Uh, excuse me, just a minute. Yes, can I see that, please? Uh, yes, please. Just, just give it, give it. Ah. Sorry. Can't stand those things. <laughs> anyway, where were we? So for the well, first he's... time we uh, encounter Michael Palin, the f- this is the first time we see another Python appear in the film. The, the studio were pressing this to be Time Bandits, a Monty Python film. But because they didn't have all of the Pythons on board, they only grabbed a couple of them, the Pythons together decided they weren't going to allow that. You cannot show this as a Monty Python film unless they're all in it. So it's a Terry Gilliam film, not a Python film. That led to a bit of Python on Python violence. Oh, goodness. Yes. Uh, If you're interested in... Oh, yeah. No, if you want to read a book that will absolutely blow your mind about what a giant giant shit show making this film was like a huge fight um there's a book called very naughty boys uh which is the history of handmade films this was not the first film that handmade made it was my misunderstanding when i said that in an earlier conclave um but handmade films was uh, was a production company founded well co-founded by former beetle george harrison uh, along with Dennis O'Brien, um, initially to produce Monty Python's Life of Brian, which got dropped by a production company because when they finally read the script, because they were just like, oh, Monty Python's making another movie. Sure, no problem. Go ahead. Here's all this money. Go do this stuff. And they got into pre-production to the point they were building sets in Tunisia when finally the production company, their first production company, read the script and they're like, oh, fuck this. This is <laughs> this is blasphemous as hell. 
and they dropped them and they're like uh what do we do so there was this whole thing where eric idol brought terry jones and dennis o'brien and they met george harrison who turned out to be a fan and um george harrison was like oh yeah no i watched monty python to get through the beatles breakup i love you guys and he was like yeah how much oh, how much do you need he's like well this this production is like running two million pounds sterling which in today's dollars is about 40 million dollars like, yeah no i got you I mean, can you imagine somebody just being like, yeah, sure, 40 million bucks, no problem, go ahead. Well, it's yeah, I mean, like, if he's a beetle. I mean, he said, I can buy you your film, but I can't buy you love. Uh, uh, I thought I'd do a bit of a film, what do you know? Well, yeah, I mean, so this moment this moment in history actually proves that George Harrison is bigger than Jesus because he can hey, buy Jesus. Yes. <laughs> I, I, well, he can buy Brian, at least, right, who is technically on, not on. Jesus. Jesus but, is in the film. George Harrison is not Jesus. Handmade films are not idols. They're not the Messiah. They're just naughty boys. Indeed. uh, That that Python on Python violence comment made me think. In a fight between Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, which one do you think would win? Some of them are obvious. Some of them are obvious. Like, we all know Graham Chapman could kick anyone's ass. We all know they all could kick... Eric Idle's ass. But, you know, there's... Terry, Terry Jones has got that weaselly vermin cunning. You know, he's going to go low, attack the soft parts. Terry Gilliam, he's a larger fella. He's probably got good punching weight behind him. It's a tough uh, battle. John Cleese think... has got the reach. I think it would be funny to see Graham Chapman versus Eric Idle because it'd be like watching a couple of broomsticks in a bag. Well, you know, <laughs> you know Graham Chapman's a biter. He's also been like told that he was the most angry out of all of them. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam almost came to blows on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which they co-directed. Okay. That's saying yes. So so they're they're all gathered up in the woods uh, somewhere in the middle of time, and uh, they take a quick snapshot of the group uh, with the map with Kevin's camera, which will absolutely not play a pivotal role in the film later, foreshadowing. The time bandits are caught by that other group of bandits from before. Randall's quick talking convinces them that the time bandits are the worst of the worst, meanest of the mean, cruel and vicious. So they go to see the boss of the other bandits with a proposition, and they meet Robin Hood, a polite, cheery fellow with progressive ideas about wealth distribution vis-a-vis robbing from the rich and so forth. John Cleese! Quick side note. John Cleese gets top billing on this picture, even over Sean fucking Connery, who had played James Bond at this point. So, like, he was an international star. John Cleese got top billing over Sean Connery in this picture. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Welcome, welcome, John Cleese. He proceeds to rob them of their stolen goods while thanking them for their generosity to the poor. At least, they didn't have to get punched in the face. Robin's crew are a little bit hazy on the whole charity thing, and hand out precious goblets and paintings to a waiting line of poor folk who have no way of actually reselling these for uh, money that they can spend on sustenance, uh, along with a few vicious beatings for good measure. One of the best comedy lines of a film when there's this thug just punching out members of the poor one after another as they come to collect goods from Robin Hood. And he says, oh, is that really necessary? Oh, yeah, 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 it's absolutely Punch, punch, punch. It's brilliant. What I love about that thug <laughs> is that thug's name is Marion, as in Maid Marion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, is, this is, of course, where the, the grandma punching comes in. 
But like, I love for me the way he says it when they're like, "Is that absolutely necessary?" It's like, "Oh, oh yeah, it is." Like the, that implies these guys are unionized. And yeah, that's he's a union. <laughs> No, the, the exact the exact wording was afraid so. <laughs> and it's it's an incredibly cynical and dark take on giving to the poor, and that's what yeah. we love about. Yeah, this. no, it's great. It's just like, well, uh, I mean, listen, we personally we love to be good commies and give to the poor, but um, you know, the union bylaws say we're bandits, and therefore we must be beating these people up. So we give them, and then we beat them up. Like, it's just sorry. I mean, I, I wish we could change it, but that's just, that's, those are the regs. Yeah. Uh, such an 80s take on socialism there. <laughs> oh, did you know that this, uh, this movie is going to be remade as a series? Oh, no. Do you want to know who's going to be directing the series or producing? Taika Waititi. That's exactly right. <laughs> wow. This, this, that instant, this happens so many times to me now where this goes, I hear something and it goes instantly from, oh, God, dude, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just apparently the man can do no wrong at the moment. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's kind of he's stepping up there. He's done, what, The Mandalorian. He's done What We Do in the Shadows. He's done uh, Reservation Dogs. He's done, um, this reservation uh, what is it? Dogs Our Flag is? Means Death. Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, he, uh, he's, I mean, he's, a he's an EP on that. He's a co-producer. Anyway. Right. We're going to collect a lot of time bandits, and we're going to all get together with a mip, and we're going to go through time, and we're going to steal things for our own enrichment. Uh, Taka, uh, uh, do, do you want uh, little guys this time? Well, I that's want them to be small, but not so small that they're not medium, and a couple of large ones. Wait, do you hear something moving through the dense reeds on the banks of the mighty Nile? You mean just by that magnificent view of a sphinx? Wait, wait, you mean by that magnificent view of the young empress taking a baby out of the Nile in a basket of reeds? This reminds me of Hebrew school. <laughs> nice, very Jewish. Next to that spectacular series of pyramids in their ancient glory? No, over there. No, that's just Andre getting pickles from the pickle cart. You're good, guys. Uh, you don't have compost, though. No, over there. <sighs> Quick! We need another hole! Follow me! Raisings? Suck it, you cannibalistic human! No time! Great, where are we now? Jeez, it's freezing here. Look, building of some kind. We can take cover. Well, we've either arrived before indoor plumbing and electric lights, or else after those things are a bitter memory from the before times. What is this? A hut full of rocks? Boulders. Stones. Kumquats? What's the difference? Uh, kumquats are a fruit, the others are stones. Oh, wish I was stoned. What? What? No, the difference between rocks and stones. When they have a bunch of runes carved on them, they become stones. It sounds cooler. Smart ass. So what does this say? Up here on the wall. Um, Mad Snorgris pre-carved rune stone hut. Ha! I told you they were stones. Damn it. 
Uh, Actually, I think that's pronounced Snorgrist. Snorgrist? Snorgrist. Not established. No, that's not Snorgrist. Definitely Snorgrist. The boulders are obvious because they're big, they're round, you have to climb on them. What about rocks? Can we all just compromise on rock? I mean, really, rocks and stones. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Daniel Scribner, Andy Slack, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks, Andre Luke Martinez, and Ethan Ireland. Introducing Hope Bravo. Written by Andrea Palladino and Andy Slack. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like, so stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.